Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp, your host for New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Today, we have Distinguished Professor of History, Political Science, and Comparative Literature at the CUNY Graduate Center, Richard Wollen. Uh, Earlier this year, he published, very, very recently, uh, Heidegger and Ruins Between Philosophy and Ideology. Welcome to the podcast, Professor Wollen. Thanks very much for inviting me, Ryan. It's a pleasure to speak with you. So we're, in in terms of the uh, organization of the podcast, we're going to first dive into uh, a little bit uh, into Martin Heidegger and his background. Um, How do you introduce Martin Heidegger to your students? Uh, And why did you subtitle your book Between Philosophy and Ideology? Uh, In that context, if you could briefly address uh, Heidegger's uh, resignation from the University of Freiburg in 1934 and how he was appointed uh, to the rectorship, it would be duly appreciated. Sure. Uh, thanks. Thanks for posing these uh, very, very fundamental and important questions. Uh, Heidegger, uh, for those uh, unaware, is usually considered to be one of the most important, if not the most important, philosophers of the 20th century. And in fact, uh, in the history of Western thought, uh, above all, his reputation is related to the success of uh, Being in Time, which he published in 1927. And the significance of being in time is uh, manifold, but uh, in essence, it is a an attempt to place uh, Western philosophy on a new footing uh, by by basing his inquiry on the problematic of existence, or what he calls the existence of Dasein uh, as a substitute for the traditional subject. Uh, of philosophy and uh, the idea of being in the world, that uh, what it means to exist has to do with a series of concrete relation and practical relations to the world, to uh, other persons or Daseins, as Heidegger says, but also in terms of a whole series of capacities, such as the capacity to have a world. Uh, an environment uh, which humans have uh, as opposed to other entities or beings. Uh, He mentions and excludes from this category, for example, uh, stones, uh, inanimate beings, uh, and animals at a a different level for purposes of comparison. So, of course, uh, you know, being in time is one volume of a collected work edition that numbers... 102 volumes, uh, staggeringly, I might say, which is also one of the reasons it took me a while to finish this book. You don't have to treat every volume, but there's a lot that's important 
And I'll just say uh, to, to wind up this uh, part of the answer that risks getting uh, a bit lengthy, uh, you know, who was Martin Heidegger? What's his significance in the history of uh, thought? That, of course, he was extremely influential and he had many disciples, so to speak, and followers, just to mention a couple of the more significant ones, uh, Emmanuel Levinas, uh, uh, who wrote Totality and Infinity, had a, uh, an important critique of Heidegger early on uh, in the 30s, uh, but considered Heidegger an indispensable point of departure. And also I'll just mention in passing that, of course, the philosophy of Jacques Derrida, the whole notion of deconstruction, is related to uh, directly derived from uh, a term in being in time, Heidegger's uh, formulation of a what Heidegger calls a destructure, destructuring or destruction, literally of Western metaphysics, indicating its unserviceability for a whole series of ends and and philosophical uh, projects. So there's there's quite a legacy, and uh, he's had Heidegger's had you know influences in a whole series of fields and disciplines, academic and non-academic. And so his significance, uh, as I emphasize in my introduction, is his fundamental significance in the intellectual history of the 20th century is unquestioned. At the same time, uh, as you rightly indicate, uh, my subtitle, between philosophy and ideology hints at the fact that there is always this fusion and coalescence of elements or moments. It somewhat inheres in Heidegger's notion of philosophy as a, a worldly activity, a practical activity. And one of the key categories of being in time, which I probably should have mentioned two minutes ago, uh, historicity, that this is a very important uh, category in Heidegger and term in, in German uh, hermeneutics from the 19th century as well, that, that one has to understand uh, Dasein and existence not in terms of uh, you know, eternal precepts or principles uh, or, or ideas, but uh, in terms of uh, historical situatedness and historical becoming. Uh, of course, there's a lot to say there. But this is, in a way, uh, an important stimulus or spur for me to also uh, flesh out the uh, dimension of ideology. And, and just to be direct about this, uh, I don't mean Nazism purely and simply uh, by any means, but I do mean an attachment to what I call in the book German exceptionalism or the German way the German path as non-Western, non-democratic, anti-enlightenment. So it's a specific strand of German history post-dating really uh, the, say, the wars of liberation versus Napoleon in the early 19th century, which Heidegger alludes to at certain points. So this, my, my conclusion, my starting point, my conclusion in many ways is that uh, these two aspects of Heidegger's thought 
namely first philosophy, fundamental ontologies, he calls it, on the one hand, and what I'm calling as a shorthand ideology, the uh, connectedness of Heidegger's thinking with these trends in uh, you know, German history are very much uh, present in his writing in all its phases. And it's, it's hard to determine that in translation often. So this is one of the quote unquote services, uh, you know, or, or uh, aspects of his thought I'm trying to uh, fathom and, and uh, consider and contemplate in my book. Um, I, I, I'm just wondering, is it a good idea maybe to go on to the early 30s and your question about his uh, having assumed the rectorship of Freiburg University in 33 and, and quit in 34. Uh, yeah, uh, yes, this, that's uh, pretty crucial, I think, in uh, these debates over Heidegger and National Socialism. Yeah, uh, the, the reasoning behind, first of all, his joining the National Socialist Party in May of 33 uh, has to do with his sense of the acute crisis afflicting Western civilization, which was already part of the uh, critique of modernity in being in time, very much influenced by Nietzsche's critique of nihilism, and also uh, Oswald Schwengler's Decline of the West and extremely momentous uh, book for uh, German intellectuals, <clears throat> conservative intellectuals during the 1920s. And especially after the uh, crash, economic crash of 1929, there was an acute sense that things could not go on as previously. And the, the, the death knell of the Weimar Republic began sounding really about a year later in 1930 when the Nazis made their first breakthrough in the uh, Weimar parliamentary system, uh, winning 18% of the vote in 1930. That really changed the, uh, the political landscape uh, where extreme parties were the dominant parties. So in keeping with his interest in what I called before historicity, uh, Heidegger appreciated the dimensions and proportions of this crisis. And, you know, it's safe to say that he had a rather exalted sense of his own philosophical mission and the accomplishments of his fundamental ontology and being in time, placing Western thought on a radically new footing that would be beyond metaphysics, as, as he termed it. And uh, to cut to the chase, he really did for a time attempt to assume the intellectual and philosophical leadership of the Nazi movement. The expression that's used in this connection is he sought, uh, after the model of Plato perhaps at Syracuse uh, and the tyrant Dionysus, a rather ill-fated uh, uh, attempt on Plato's part, but he tried to lead the leader. Uh, in German, it's uh, den Führer führen. And of course, the Führer here was none other than uh, 
Hitler. We have letters that uh, Heidegger wrote to his brother. They've only been uh, made available fairly recently in the last few years, which exposes his enthusiasm for Hitler's charisma uh, as early as 1931 and his sense that uh, Hitler could be the uh, savior of uh, a German uh, political uh, being uh, or system that was uh, teetering in many ways. So uh, this is very important in terms of his motivations in, in uh, stepping into the fray in 1933, as it were, and uh, uh, being quite, quite active in trying to ensure that the university uh, locally in Freiburg, where he taught and where he was uh, assumed the rectorship in, in May 33, but also on a national scale, he lobbied uh, quite considerably uh, several uh, national university organizations and student organizations to ensure, this is the word he uses, uh, it's a, a fraught word, the Gleichschaltung, or, or uh, you know, political alignment of German politics and society uh, in accordance with national socialist principles. Quickly, to, to jump to April 1934, the reason he resigned, it's often thought that he ran up against resistance by the party hierarchy, especially in uh you know, his native region of Baden in Southwest Germany. But it seems that uh, the situation was more complicated by the fact that there was resistance on the part of the faculty. It was, uh, there was a long tradition of university self-government in Freiburg. The faculty could generally be construed as traditional conservatives uh, rather than radical conservatives or, or Nazis. And there was a lot of pushback against uh, the rashness with which Heidegger tried to realign the university system, uh, which was very important for Heidegger. Because this is the center of, of knowledge uh, and philosophy as, you know, traditionally, so to speak, the, the queen of the sciences. We wouldn't use that term today, but it was used back then, um, hence the, the, the mission of the university was considered to be very important for for Heidegger. Uh, so uh, he he did resign in April 1934. The experience of day-to-day -day political struggles was something he was probably unprepared for and and uh, uh, unschooled for. But he remained active, and I just point out in conclusion to uh, an answer It's becoming overly long, uh, maybe like the book itself that we're talking about, that Heidegger, two weeks later, he joined uh, Hans Frank, uh, uh, Hitler's former personal attorney, uh, who had become governor general of Poland, who had begun in 1933, an academy of German, for German law, Heidegger joined an elite committee 
called the Committee on Philosophy of Law that had several luminaries. Uh, Hans Frank himself was the chair. There were only 16 original members. Carl Schmidt, who was the leading uh, jurist in Nazi Germany at the time, was also a member. And so was Alfred Rosenberg, the ideology czar of uh, the National Socialist Movement. So uh, uh, the, the aspirations of this committee were nothing if not uh, ambitious. So that's only to say that having given up on the rectorship of Freiburg University, Heidegger by no means withdrew into private life. And then in, to, to conclude with the black notebooks, that began, uh, you know, publication in uh, 2014. We have nine volumes of them now. Uh, we can see uh, one of the reasons they're important is we can see Heidegger's ongoing meta commentaries on contemporary political life, including National Socialism, World War II, in light of his own uh, uh, philosophy, fundamental ontology, or uh, philosophy of being. So, uh, sorry for being a bit <laughs> lengthy there, but but you know they they were uh, broad questions, so I tried to do my best. Tried to uh, uh, make this into an introdu introductory uh, prompt. Um, so, to to be a little bit more, let's let's zero in on uh, your introductory chapter. Why are entire volumes of the Black Notebooks uh, and the collected works missing? How did they go missing? Um, and then perhaps explain the significance of translations, for example, for Nature History State. Yes. Uh, well, now we, we go from perhaps tragedy to farce. Uh, and I, I don't know how low I should stoop here in telling some of these anecdotes, but I guess they're in the book. So... Uh, you know, Heidegger gave one of the notebooks to a woman who was his lover in the uh, early 50s. And it turns out that after she died, the notebook was in the possession of her son, who is a professor of German studies in Germany, now retired Silvio Vieta. And when the notebooks began uh, publication in 2014, there was uh, an explanation about this missing volume and uh, numerous queries. And all of a sudden, uh, Vieta showed up on the scene and presented them. And it was a bit comical at the time. But, but uh, this is kind of the tip of the iceberg concerning the uh, editorial manipulation and, in point of fact, falsification of some of the texts. It's an important story. Uh, I didn't expect to spend a chapter on it, but I think it needs to be told in a coherent manner to understand the, the, the textual history of his collect Heidegger's Collected Works edition. But let me segue quickly to the second part of your question, which is also very important namely the uh, idiosyncratic nature of the translations that have appeared of Heidegger, uh, primarily uh, in English, but, but you know, in, in many languages, this is a, a real conundrum, how one translates keywords 
that are uh, embedded contextually in the ideolo ideological uh, situation of the times that in certain ways are almost untranslatable. Uh, this is, it's, a, it's a real problem. And of course, the whole idea of having a translation is to render the keywords uh, satisfactorily in the, the language of translation. Uh, on the other hand, it's fairly common practice when one's referring to key developments in National Socialism, such as the idea of uh, Germany as a folk and uh, the notion of, uh, say, Hitler as uh, the Führer of Germany or leader. There's a whole litany uh, of related terms that are very important in understanding the political the political self-image or self-conception of National Socialism in terms of the Führer principle, uh, the leadership principle, namely, uh, and the whole idea of of in German, it's Führertum, a leadership, uh, this hierarchical notion of politics, which is a rejection, a conscious rejection of democratic egalitarianism to, for starters. So my point in the book, uh, you know, to be brief, is that when one translates notions of, of Führertum uh, and Führer, as leader and leadership, uh, and also folk, which by 33 had become monopolized by National Socialism. All the other political parties were declared uh, illegal, uh, and the German right basically had been uh, subsumed under National Socialism. It, it was a racial concept by then. Uh, one knew what one was talking about. In the 19th century, Folk could mean people in English. It could be a democratic notion. It could indicate popular sovereignty. It had Rousseauian connotations. But by the, when Heidegger is using it in the 1930s, it has very different connotations and meanings related to the racial tendencies uh, and, and gist of uh, the German people. So if one translates it as people, folk as people, this is definitely going to be misleading. It will not faithfully convey the, to go back to my subtitle, the ideological uh, crux of Heidegger's uh, intentions. So it, 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 it is a, a misnomer and it tends to really airbrush or factor out the ideological slant uh, of his thinking. Uh, and if one wants to get to the bottom of this conundrum, of the uh, entwinement of philosophy and ideology in Heidegger's work, uh, one has to heed these ind indicators or, or signs uh, or, or semantics. Uh, if one wants to suppress or repress or marginalize them, then one pursues another route or avenue. And, and this is the, the problem we face with many Heidegger translations, unfortunately, that uh, are, are slanted and geared toward uh, downplaying uh, the ideological aspects of his thinking. 
So in the context of his correspondence with his brother, can you explain the concepts of uh, Sangashista and uh, Razengdanka? Um, I'll let you, I'll let you uh, explain those. Um, and then, you know, you address periodically uh, pre-Socratic thought in your book and Heidegger. Um, you don't have to go into that, but um, perhaps, um, you know, a later time you can. Uh, but I do want to hear about his correspondence with his bro- brother and elucidate those two concepts. Yes. Uh, yeah, I think Sainzgeschichte, uh, history of being, it's very important. We'll just stick with it. history of being for the, the time being, uh, because that really is the kind of the cover concept that bespeaks what in Heidegger parlance is known as the turn from the Dasein being in the world centered perspective of being in time, his, his earlier work in existential ontology, toward a new shift that is more in line with his interest in, as, as you suggested, the pre-Socratics, uh, above all Heraclitus, uh, because he feels that classical Greek philosophy of the Socratic school is still uh, kind of committed uh, an original sin of Western thought or philosophy by remaining remaining indebted to the paradigm of the subject, uh, especially Plato's doctrine of ideas uh, or the, 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 the notion of representation, which is exemplary of metaphysics for Heidegger, which is something he wants to get away from. Hence, the, the pre-Socratics uh, as an earlier approach, I mean, we only have a handful of texts to go on, uh, but this seems to be, in Heidegger's estimation, more authentic. Uh, this really, as I said, bespeaks the fundamental shift in his thought from the 20s to the 30s, from uh, uh, the, the paradigm of existence or Dasein to the history of being. So, uh, but this is also interfused importantly with the increasing ideological commitments on Heidegger's part, because another important philosophical theme that arises circa the early 1930s is that he perceives uh, German Dasein, uh, or as I call it in the book, uh, Deutschtum, or German being, as metaphysically privileged and as a unique link to the Greek beginning, as he calls it, referencing pre-Socratic thought, as the heir or inheritor of the Greek beginning and as the uh, folk uh, or people who are capable, who are uniquely capable of of effectuating a transition to what he calls another beginning, uh, uh, neue Anfang, it it is in German. And this becomes, as it were, the, uh, and I use this word, uh, you know, intentionally and self-consciously, the eschatological telos of Heideggerian thought, the transcendence of the age of nihilism and the age of civilizational decadence and decline, 
the perspective he inherits from, you know, Nietzsche and Spengler and many contemporaries, one might say, and his uh, allusions to the, the prospect of another beginning, uh, paralleling a, re a reenactment on a higher plane of the Greek beginning, whereby one might say uh, in uh, Heideggerian uh, language that the being of beings for the first time can, uh, you know, uh, arise and and uh, come to presence. But what's important is that, again, the, the dimension of historicity in Heidegger, circa 1933, when these uh, fundamental philosophical transformations begin occurring in his thought. One also uh, has this parallel conception that the project is tied to history and historicity, namely the role that Germany is going to play in this process. Hence my, my claim or thesis that there's this uh, indispensable essential entwinement of philosophy and ideology or uh, ontology as the history of being and uh, the, the, the rise of a political movement, namely National Socialism, which Heidegger identifies with considerably because many of the constituents in terms of the leadership principle, in terms of Hitler's charisma, in terms of the unification of uh, the national community, the, the the Nazi term of art is Volksgemeinschaft, which Heidegger alludes to often enough, uh, is is going to be the, the vehicle in a way that philosophy could never do on its own, will be the vehicle of this uh, eschatological uh, or or you know mediating agency for this eschatological transformation or transition to another beginning. So there is this uh, apocalyptical investment of apocalyptical energy in national socialism and the Third Reich. And uh, just to, to conclude here, uh, I mean, the letters you mentioned to, uh, which haven't been translated in, in full into English yet, to his brother uh, are, are very, illuminating insofar as it shows that Heidegger uh, really did keep uh, in touch and on top of the political situation of the time. Uh, we know he subscribed to several right-wing publications. We know he subscribed to the Nazi uh, daily, the Volkscher Beobachter, uh, edited by Alfred Rosenberg. And uh, he, uh, on numerous occasions, proffers judgments on various regime changes, political transformations. In Germany, I'm talking about in, in the early 1930s and 32 and 33. Uh, so uh, it shows that he wasn't uh, you know, totally uh, tone deaf to, you know, uh, political, to, to current events, uh, so, which is very important. But also that uh, you know he he did tie together in his own mind the developments in his philosophy or Denkin uh, with uh, actualities or, or current events. 
Can you elucidate connections between Heidegger's anti-Semitism and concepts uh, such as Denken? And, um, you know, I might be uh, er erroneous here. And if you could address uh, sort of his kind of uh, the replacement of Cartesian metaphysics of subjectivity with kind of sign unconcealment, um, you know, and then this kind of emphasis on heteronomy, uh, you know, did was there were there any connections to his anti-Semitism with uh, you know sign unconcealment and the concept of Denkin? Yes, I think that that's uh, important, and it's been before the black notebooks were published. It's been a aspect of his work that uh, concerning which there's been a lot of speculation but it's been a little murky. Uh, you know, just to kind of begin with basics, it's hard to imagine someone like Heidegger joining the Nazi party and vying for a leading role in the, the movement uh, as a philosophical leader without accepting one of the, you know, sine qua non or linchpins of national socialist ideology, namely anti-Semitism. And if one looks back at Heidegger's earlier work um, to show that this isn't a total break or breach with his earlier uh, philosophy or fundamental ontology, certainly when one takes a look at the, uh, the criticism of civilization, so to speak, uh, in German, there's a, a word for it, uh, a long one, uh, Zivilisationskritik. The association of civilization in a disparaging sense with uh, modernization and the role, the putative leading roles that Jews have played in uh, you know, the development of capitalism and uh, modern society or Gesellschaft, etc., uh, much of which was based on prejudice and anti-Semitism. But, but many of these leitmotifs are implicit, I think, in the critique of society and civilization and Dasman or, you know, uh, the they, as it's sometimes translated, in being in time. Hence, it, everything becomes, though, more apocalyptical once this... Uh, the, the development of the crisis, the progress of the crisis in the early 30s in both Germany and internationally with the economic collapse, uh, you know, the proportions these phenomena assume. And when, when one, uh, you know, steps into this role as an ideologue, uh, these aspects that were previously more or less implicit, although they are implicit in, in they are explicit in letters uh, as earlier on as well, and and uh, other aspects, but but they assume a, a more uh, acute and and pitch and prominence. So there were there were many readers of black notebooks who were so to speak taken aback by the uh, presence of avowed anti-Semitism. But in, in many ways, this criticism of the uh, you know, international Jewish conspiracy, 
to which Heidegger does allude in, in the Black Notebooks, is part and parcel of the ideological mentality of the times if one is on the German right. It's very hard to be on the right, not even Nazi, uh, conservative revolutionary right, a la Spengler and Karl Schmitt and and, and Junger. Uh, it's, it's hard to be in this camp and uh, totally ignore uh, or, you know, distance oneself from anti-Semitism. Uh, there, there, there's an insight that Ernst Kassirer has in The Myth of the State from 1945, Heidegger's interlocutor, 16 years earlier at Davos, where Kassirer mentions that in times of crisis, the trusted intellectual and ideological frames of reference also begin disintegrating, and uh, uh, there's the encroachment of a kind of desperation to try to make sense of dissonant circumstances. And then there is a recourse to uh, explicit recourse to or regression, as Kassirer calls it, to myth and ideology, to rigid paradigms that, uh, you know, uh, tend to uh, imprison thought within fixed parameters, which is something that that's hard to, uh, you know, uh, associate with, with Heidegger. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it's something that really needs to be, to be explored. Uh, so uh, maybe I should, I should stop there. There's a bit more one could say, I think, about the uh, philosophical bases of his critique of, as he calls it, uh, world Jewry. But, uh, you know, maybe, maybe I'll uh, stop short of going into too much detail at this particular point. Okay. Um, so if you could explain, I think this is really important to your book, Heidegger's, and you've already alluded to facets of it, Heidegger's spiritual national socialism, um, and, and uh, particularly within the context uh, of the Verzhong and uh, Jewish worldlessness. Um, and then if you can... Um, I, I thought this was uh, not so much compelling, but I think interesting is that he kind of almost has a racialized dialectic where he argues that the Jews, ha- quote the Jews, have lived on the basis of the principle of race. Um, if you can address that within the context of explaining his spiritual national socialism, I think it would be helpful. Yes, I think that, uh, as, as I, I said a minute ago, when the crisis various crises, in fact, overlapping crises, reach a certain pitch, there's an acute search for origins and explanations and culprits. And uh, Heidegger, in terms of his critique of modernity, does begin to hold, uh, you know, world Jewry, as he puts it, accountable. But this also relates to certain, uh, as your question suggests fundamental themes of his philosophy, above all, the leitmotif of having a world or, uh, you know, kind of worldliness in Heidegger's existential sense in being in time. And the way he develops this in the early 30s, actually beginning in 1929, is that he links the idea of having a world, which is a 
basic constituent or sine qua non for, for existing in a meaningful sense, according to Heidegger. He relates this attribute to the phenomenon of rootedness and rootedness in soil and being tied to place or locality uh, or, or regions. This is a very important leitmotif in Heidegger's thinking that uh, he first develops in the, the mid-1920s and one sees it recur also in his post-war thinking in uh, his, his work uh, Gelassenheit from 59 or, or Discourse on Thinking as it's translated into English. So what, what happens is that he considers as a result of uh, common misconceptions and prejudices, he believes that Jews as cosmopolitans are not rooted in place or rooted in soil and hence don't belong to nation states, uh, a commonplace uh, anti-Semitic prejudice in the 1930s uh, as this crisis metastasizes. Hence, he claims that Jews are worldless because uh, they are, in Heidegger's sense, not, not rooted in soil, uh, a term that he uses uh, repeatedly. And beca hence, because Jews are, quote unquote, worldless, uh, one cannot, they have no capacity for authenticity. And hence their existence is intrinsically or ontologically faulty. They fall into this category for Heidegger in terms of his reconceptualization of, of historicity in the 1930s as an unhistorical people. There are certain, there are, Heidegger divides the world in terms of unhistorical historical peoples and non-historical peoples. Historical peoples are the carriers of history in the sense of Heidegger's, this term you mentioned earlier, the, the Seinsgeschichte or the history of being. And not only are Jews worldless, allegedly, but they contribute to the loss of tradition, substance, continuity, rootedness, and they are a risk to the, as such, they are a risk to the, the Volksgemeinschaft. In fact, all these are fairly commonplace uh, anti-Semitic cliches of the first uh, third uh, of the, the 20th century. So uh, I think this is very important that uh, Heidegger's quote-unquote prejudices against world Jewry are not merely biographical or contingent uh, uh, transient prejudices, but many of them, I think, are rooted in the framework, as Heidegger, I think, would be the, himself the first to say, and as the Black Notebooks and, and other texts attest, uh, these criticisms are rooted in his philosophy, which you know gets back to the subtitle of my book, <laughs> Between Philosophy and Ideology, that, that these two moments are, are, are often interfused in his thought, and, and one really needs to do a responsible, conscientious job of sorting these elements out to better understand the historicity of Heidegger's own thought. 
So you alluded to Plato earlier. If you can explore the uh, significance of Platonic guardians, um, as well as poet legislatures in Heideggerian thought. Yes, uh, this is kind of an interesting aspect because we know from several important philosophical texts, uh, such as Plato's Doctrine of Truth that uh, Heidegger wrote and rewrote from the early 30s to 1940, that we, we know Heidegger conventionally as an arch critic of Plato and Platonism and Plato as the, the culprit who uh, set Western metaphysics along the route of, of you know, ideation or representation through his emphasis on, on the ideas or the separation between supersensible being and, and sensible reality, which he dubbed inf inferior. Um, but on, on, by the same token, there are uh, early lecture courses in, in the 30s, uh, in addition to his uh, philosophically substantive uh, rectoral address of May 1933, in which we get a different consideration of Plato's legacy, in which the, in the rectoral address, for example, he talks about three types of service, uh, labor service, uh, military service, and service and knowledge, this kind of tripartite uh, division, hierarchical division uh, of social and political castes, which corresponds uh, very much to Plato's formulations uh, in the Republic, where Plato talks about philosopher kings, uh, guardians, and uh, and producers as the three tiers uh, of uh, his ideal society uh, in the Republic, which in German, by the way, is uh, at the time was rendered uh, der Staat or uh, the state, uh, interestingly. So uh, Heidegger does reconsider this uh, dimension of Plato's political thought at the time and actually has a dialogue, epistolary dialogue with Germany's leading classicist, uh, Werner Jaeger, uh, who's on the cusp of publishing his great work on Paideia, uh, who's also interested in these questions uh, of the role that uh, education and philosophical education and and the Greek conception of paideia uh, as kind of a byword for uh, education in a substantive sense uh, can can play in regenerating a state or a polity etc so it's uh, especially relevant here is the motivation, Heidegger's motivation to reconsider the, the notion of poets and philosophers as legislators. And that's something he shares with uh, Weber, I'm sorry, with uh, Werner Jaeger. And uh, of course, this isn't Plato's view since Plato uh, held poets in low esteem and, and uh, you know, kicked them out of his Republic in, in uh, book three. Uh, but but uh, there's a reconsideration of uh, what Heidegger calls 
poetic revealing, basically tied to the figure of uh, Friedrich uh, Hölderlin, whom Heidegger lectures on extensively in the early 30s. So uh, on that note, Heidegger discusses, uh, well, attempts to implement um, ideas of camps in his uh, curriculum and pedagogy, um, joy in work, uh, these militant services and political camps. Um, how are those tied? And if there was any connection to his uh, his kind of pursuit of the ontological potential of uh, national, national socialist education's inner truth and greatness. And uh, am I wrong in, uh, in, uh, in uh, thinking that this inner truth and greatness was all in turn connected to, I think, a very fundamental idea of um, replacing and framing technique with uh, this kind of pre-modern Black Forest craftsmanship. Was that part of his uh, curriculum, and how does that tie into the camps? Yes, I, I think in in terms of the argument of my book and one of the uh, central chapters, which is called only half tongue in cheek uh, Arbeit macht frei, which of course was the uh, you know accursed uh, maxim that that was engraved in the gate to Auschwitz. In point of fact, uh, one cannot help but notice that when Heidegger is interested in articulating what a philosophical reconstruction of German destiny would be, uh, would resemble in correspondence to the Nazi seizure of power. One of the key words is Arbeit uh, in German or work. And admittedly, there's an important confluence here because clearly just to begin to for starters, the Nazi party, the full name is the National Socialist German Workers Party. And there was a left-wing current uh, of the party associated with the Strasser brothers that was purged uh, in the Night of the Long Knives, uh, June 30th, 1934. Gregor Strasser was one of the the figures who was killed. But Heidegger's uh, lectures and political texts of 33 and 34, uh, not just his political texts, but, but also lecture courses and seminars of this period, are replete with uh, payons uh, to the ontological mission of Arbeit. Uh, just to step back for a minute, uh, one of the conclusions of the German conservative revolutionary movement after Germany's defeat in World War One, which was, uh, you know, in part a function of the November Revolution, which was uh, a nationwide. Uh, uprising and strike on the part of workers and soldiers, that one of the keys to regenerating uh, Germany as an authoritarian state was to induce the workers to seduce them away from international socialism and from uh, communism and, and the Social Democratic Party to a national socialism, let's say with a small, for now, a small n and a small s. This was the argument that uh, Oswald Spengler made in his book after Decline of the West, a very important political book, Prussianism and Socialism, where Spengler basically argues that uh, we don't need international values. 
uh, international socialism because we have the Prussian values of diligence and, and a work ethic, etc. And this is German socialism, and it's organized uh, according to principles of authority, etc. And of course, uh, Ernst Junger, uh, in his work uh, that Heidegger revered, the worker or der Arbeiter in German, pursued a similar argument he conceived of German society in this dystopian, uh, you know, work, uh, several hundred pages, as uh, he envisioned it as a as a uh, Arbeiterstaat, a worker state, a worker soldier state. Really, when he realized that workers and soldiers were almost interchangeable given the importance of uh, industry and, and you know, technological weaponry uh, as a deciding factor in modern warfare based on, on World War I uh, and so forth. Uh, you know, Heidegger does have this semi-provincial Black Forest mentality and approach to Arbeit, craftsmanship, etc. on the one hand, but he also makes a sincere effort piggybacking, one might say, on Junger's notion of the worker to, uh, you know, acclimatize his worldview with modern tech, with technology. Of course, he was a, he's known as a critic of technology in his later writings, especially the, the question concerning technology and, and uh, the age of the world picture from the late 30s, etc. But there are other indices that have certainly been discussed in secondary literature on this problem in Heidegger, whereby, for example, in 1940, when the uh, you know the Wehrmacht has this miraculous Blitzkrieg victory over uh, France and the Maginot Line in, in June 1940, uh, he, Heidegger calls this in a lecture course given at the time on Nietzsche a metaphysical act. So there's this interesting discourse on technology in Germany, uh, a traditional skepticism about modernity and technology, especially in the part of the German right uh, of long standing, uh, going back to figures like, you know, Werner Zombart, etc. Uh, on the other hand, uh, one well knows that in order to be successful in modern warfare, uh, this cannot be done without uh, somehow assimilating technology to the values of uh, German power, power politics or the values of the folk. And this is one of the aspects of national socialism that Heidegger thought that the movement uh, had gotten right, uh, or had at the very least taken a step in the right direction uh, in, in uh, this respect, namely uh, the uh, ultimate reconciliation uh, of the conflict between technology and quote-unquote modern man, uh, that somehow national socialism, because of the national the values of the Volksgemeinschaft, the national community, this, this uh, you know, uh, attempt to surmount the so-called tensions and divisions or lacerations of modern society or Gesellschaft, the division of labor, class struggle above all, that in overcoming uh, these lacerations or divisions that uh, Heidegger admired this about national socialism, he speaks positively of the so-called national community, and hence he believed that there was this integration uh, of, of technology 
with the life of the national national community, and this all has to do with his glorification of the the, the concept of uh, Arbeit or work, which he he actually uh, speaks of as a uh, a legitimate philosophical category and existential through which we we unveil uh, the world or the being of beings. Uh, Arbeit or work does this, and, and he uh, develops this thought at length, actually, in a, a seminar he gives in uh, 1934, 33-34. He's supposed to lecture on logic, but uh, he actually lectured on uh, philosophical understanding of the notion of, of folk uh, and other key concepts in uh, you know national socialism to set the movement on proper philosophical footing. So uh, you know there there's also this concept, very strange, uh, one sees in Heidegger of joy in work. Uh, in German, it's Arbeitsfreude. Uh, that was actually had been bandied about in the, the 20s by German industrialists trying to make the working class happy and more satisfied with their uh, conditions. And uh, so there's this whole kind of philosophy of Taylor, Taylorism that was in play during this period, and, and that was somewhat taken up by uh, the Nazi uh, beautification of labor program with the, uh, it's, it's called the, uh, RAD or Reichsarbeitservice. That was the Nazi uh, Ministry of Labor. Uh, I mean, Heidegger kept on top of all these developments. He followed them, and uh, so it's it's actually quite instructive to see the way that he tried to uh, merge his fundamental philosophical in intuitions with the you know ongoing developments of contemporary history. It's both uh, edifying and, uh, you know, a bit, uh, you know, well, off, to say it's off-putting, it's an, it would be an understatement. It's disturbing. So you mentioned the seeming reconciliation of uh, his technique critique with uh, this kind of uh, engagement with technology. Um, how does that work within the context of his uh, allusions to Jewish uh, self-annihilation? Um and also, uh, in the context, I think you mentioned this earlier, uh, the age of the world picture. And, um, you know, did, did, all, did the Holocaust or uh, World War II change any of, uh, of uh, did it change Heideggerian thought in this regard? It, it didn't change it much. It kind of confirmed many of his negative suspicions about civilization, technology, and the putative role of world Jewry in all this. You allude in your question to one of the most uh, you know, disappointing and off-putting remarks from the one of the post-war volumes of the Black Notebooks, volume 97, where Heidegger describes, uh, actually this is a remark that, that was made uh, in the early 40s, um, where Heidegger discusses uh, the, the idea of the, the death camps as uh, a phenomenon of Jewish self-annihilation, which at 
at first view seems kind of puzzling, but what he meant to say was that the the death camps uh, were, which were instances of industrialized mass murder. There was a, a perverse irony at work here, since he adjudged the Jews to be the leading carriers of modernization and modern industrialism, uh, an old argument that had been made by Werner Zombart in the Jews and Modern Capitalism and they bandied about, you know, um, countless times since then. Zombart's work is from 1911. Uh, that, that, you know, the, the irony for Heidegger is, you know, he's trying to say here, uh, disturbingly that you could one could make the argument as Heidegger does that the Jews had died by their own hands because they they had been uh, murdered uh, although Heidegger views this interprets this process as impersonal there are no executioners there are no perpetrators responsible uh, in keeping with his notion of the history of being the history of being, one has these dispensations or happenings that stem from being itself. Hence, one can't hold individuals, let alone, uh, you know, uh, nation states, accountable or responsible for these developments. So, you know, if, if one examines closely this very disturbing comment on Heidegger's part about uh, the death camps as a locus uh, or loci of Jewish self-annihilation. It's the result of this impersonal process of modern, industri modern industrialism, uh, a dispensation of being, as it were, which is a, a, a fundamental problem with the whole notion, later no notion of the history of being in Heidegger, because it seems uh, a process that's almost unfathomable to mortals uh, or to, uh, you know, uh, public interpretation. One, one needs kind of a privileged insight into the, as Heidegger calls them, the sendings of being to discern their nature uh, and, and rhythms. So, uh, but, but I think one can take a look at remarks uh, such as the one you allude to about Jewish self-annihilation uh, and uh, treat them as a, a, a basis for examining some uh, you know, broader shortcomings or flaws in Heidegger's philosophical framework, which don't have to be tied to ideologically to national socialism or anti-Semitism or any such phenomena, but just in terms of the, the interpretive uh, blockages or incapacities that are part and parcel of this framework that, that views it as a imperative to go back somehow to the pre-Socratics to uh, divine uh, or find a, find a source of insight to explain modern, uh, you know, history or events, etc. of, you know, this is probably uh, 
you know, uh, put cynically a subterfuge. And, and you know, many of the, the witnesses uh, and contemporaries who were so excited about being in time as this breakthrough in phenomenology and existential ontology felt there was this openness and potential to, to phenomenological analysis and to worldliness, being in the world, etc. cetera. Uh, all these uh, potentialities seem to be closed off, or many of them seem to be closed off or foreshortened when Heidegger makes this momentous shift from uh, you know, fundamental ontology being in time to this, uh, you know, much broader uh, all subsuming standpoint of the history of being the the uh, you know the phenomenological specificity seems to be lost in this analysis in in favor of uh, a more apocalyptic framework um, so so again I think this is another instance where the problems of philosophy and uh, ideology are entwined or related and and this is a you know an important point to uh, investigate or interrogate some of Heidegger's thought I think one of the just just to digress really quickly uh, I think one of the problems in Heidegger interpretation is uh, a lack of critical perspective. Uh, it's sometimes not good to speak in generalities like this, but in so many cases, uh, Heidegger supporters regard themselves uh, as uh, authorized exegetes and treat the discourse as almost a master text uh, that, that uh, it's a privilege to interpret or analyze and, and therefore these exegeses, authorized exegeses, uh, assume that uh, many of the presuppositions remain unexamined. Um, and I think this is a, a real shortcoming. And I think the, to, to you know, be reconceived and, and reconstituted the Heideggerian framework needs to be like any other mode of thought or, or uh, approach to, to doing philosophy needs to be subjected to uh, kind of open, open-ended criticism and uh, discussion and debate. And I guess that's one of the uh, important uh, motivations on my part for, for having produced this book. So we briefly mentioned uh, Heidegger's idea of labor as a calling as kind of a vehicle to reconcile the uh, uh, Scholen Romantic, so romanticism of the soil, uh, with techno-industrialization. Is there any uh, connection or context to his homeland, um, the uh, Alminian Swabian uh, kind of uh, landscape? Yes, we, we know that Heidegger... Uh, from many sources, and especially from uh, occasional writings going back to the 20s, and, and especially in uh, in the 50s, once Heidegger was rehabilitated after, in 1945, he was banned from teaching for five years after he was reinstated. He was quite 
uh, a frequent, uh, there's an expression in German for this, uh, Festredner, uh, or, you know, speaker, public speaker on celebratory occasions, but, but almost all of these were local, um, for local occasions, celebrating local poets and composers, etc. And uh, so this was actually a prominent uh, feature of his uh, philosophy, uh, especially in the 50s, and it kind of culminates in this well-regarded uh, lecture or text from 59 called Discourse on Thinking uh, in English. Uh, I mentioned it before, Gelassenheit in, in German, where he makes these uh, you know, allegiances to locality and the, the uh, uh, Swabian uh, uh, Alaman, Al Alemania uh, is, the, is the region. He, he alludes to this in some, already in some of his speeches from 1933 uh, on the heroism uh, of uh, a figure who was executed in 1923 by occupying French troops in the, the Ruhrgebiet. And uh, in a text from 34, where he discusses his uh, refusal of a position at the prestigious University of Berlin, his decision instead to stay uh, in Freiburg, uh, he, you know, musters many similar leitmotifs about his attachment to the local landscape and the mountains, and this is an indispensable, uh, you know, ground or basis, uh, a sense of rootedness that give, makes his philosophy what it is, uh, you know, and, and he comes back to these elements in the 1950s, and they're, they're quite pointed and, in fact, directed against the, the Federal Republic of Germany and the fact that Germany uh, is occupied, West Germany for a time, by uh, France, Germany, and the United States, of course, uh, former East Germany was occupied by the Soviet Union, and one of Heidegger's uh, modalities uh, of uh, offsetting or rebelling against this notion of Germany being occupied was was distinctly his uh, ensconcing himself in in the region and in locality as a bastion or source. Of, of authenticity and, and rootedness. So uh, I think this is uh, actually very, very revealing in uh, many respects as well. It, it bespeaks a perpetuation of Heidegger's anti-cosmopolitanism and anti-universalism, uh, but it also, in a more worrying sense, uh, bespeaks uh, a certain provincialism uh, and a continued attachment to these notions of rootedness and soil. Rootedness and soil. Heidegger, uh, there's a, a an occasional speech he gives in 1925 uh, where he says, uh, "Anything great is rooted in local soil." 
any any great work of art is rooted in locality and place. He repeats this verbatim in several places in his writings uh, and and speeches in the 1950s. So this is you know, an explicit disavowal also of cosmopolitanism and and uh, you know a, a wider mentality uh, which you know in, in terms of its uh, dogmatism I think and rigidity is is quite problematic and needs to be viewed critically uh, as to kind of what's missing from from this uh, picture or image uh, actually you know uh, not to drop names but uh, uh, Jürgen Habermas in a uh, uh, laudatio uh, or speech of praise for uh, one of his benefactors, Heidegger student, Hans Georg Gadamer, in the early 80s, subtitled this uh, speech on behalf of Gadamer, uh, interestingly, as the, the, the urbanization of the Heideggerian province, implying that Gadamer's hermeneutics had given uh, a broader or, or more universal inflection to Heideggerian hermeneutics, which were often overly tied to place and locality and region and considerations of rootedness, uh, etc. And I think this this also tells us something about. Uh, the, the source of Heidegger's limitations uh, as, as a thinker and also helps explain uh, his, his aversion to uh, you know, so-called Western forms of philosophizing, uh, you know, which, which you know, uh, tend to be a bit uh, often rather dismissive uh, I think, rather than, shall we say, uh, nuanced and dialectical, but perhaps that's my judgment. How did all this uh, foregoing Rom politic, the politics of space, uh, what was its relationship to uh, the historical uh, return to an authentic primordial rursite? Um And was there any uh, connection to the to the so-called care? Yes, I think that it's it's clear that uh, especially in a seminar that Heidegger uh, gave in 1934 on nature, state, and history, he seems very explicit in his attachments to concepts of well, we would translate it into English, I guess, as spatial politics. You know, perhaps geopolitics. So that's a bit of a different term, and in German, the term, uh, you know, is uh, as you indicated, uh, Raumpolitik, which is the phrase Heidegger uses. So, what's disturbing about this, of course, is it's, you know, National Socialism has been in power for a year, and during the 1920s, there had been the uh, evolution and advance of this notion of German geopolitics, 
uh, or you know, uh, spatial politics as well. Uh, late, at a later point, uh, Carl Schmitt would uh, specialize in this field when he reinvented himself in 1939 as uh, an expert on on geopolitics, uh, but in already in the the you know uh, mid 1920s, uh, there were advisors to Hitler, uh, Karl Haushofer, importantly, who emphasized geopolitics and and well you know it's relate certainly related to Lebensraum, and what's problematic about this concept. Um, you know, you know, to cut to the chase, is that it is a doctrine, or became a doctrine, for uh, German self-assertion. The title of Heidegger's uh, rectoral address is the self-assertion of the German university. But he was also interested in, a quest in questions, as were many German nationalists, on Germany's self-assertion as a nation. So the whole doctrine of geopolitics was to reconceive. Uh, international politics on a different basis than international law and a basis that was free uh, of the dominant international body at the time, the League of Nations, and it entitled one, uh, geopolitics, to disregard uh, international agreements, international law, uh, what we, we call today cosmopolitan law as well, Internet organs of international governance, and this also uh, coalesced with Heidegger's understanding of history as being driven by it's it's an old trope from that goes back to, to uh, Johann Gottfried Herder uh, the the idea that the carrier carriers of history are Volksgeister the spirit of peoples individual or peoples. Uh, it's, it's not a cosmopolitan process. It's not a universal process. So this also uh, fits with Heidegger's emphasis on the, the you know, primordial influences of realm uh, in German, or space, or ter and territory, and, and rootedness in soil, which is a phrase that uh, recurs in his writing, uh, you know, in the early 30s, but also before then. So I think these are also, if you will, ideological dimensions of his thought that betray a, uh, an intellectual and philosophical and existential argument and basis for his commitment to something like national socialism, why he identified with it uh, as a, a political movement, but something much more than a political movement. Uh, again, as this transmission belt uh, or mediator, historical mediator between the Greek beginning and uh, what he called another beginning um, because of its rejection of all these so-called Western values, which you know, following Nietzsche and Spengler and others, Heidegger believed were, uh, you know, implicitly uh, and thoroughly nihilistic. So it's the, the, the whole problematic still uh, that Nietzsche had established overcoming uh, the problem of nihilism, Western nihilism. And, but, it, but, but this framework 
really uh, you know foreshortens the all the potentials in modernity, in democracy, in the West. They're they're to a great extent based on on uh, you know prejudice and ideology. Uh, there's a lack of open-mindedness here. Uh, certainly, there are aspects of this critique uh, that are important and from which we can learn and that resemble, shall we say, even a Marxist critique of reification and alienation and commodity fetishism and, uh, you know, technology, etc. Um, there, there, there have been attempts made, uh, you know, in the post-war period at a Heidegger-Marx synthesis, which on a certain level uh, makes sense. But there, I think, are also limitations to this perspective. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think that that uh, this uh, uh, again, it's it's a, a similar kind of problem. This uh, Heidegger's early, uh, you know, existential ontology is tied to notions of existence, and often the the notion of existence can be tied to notions of of place and folk uh, and and uh, you know the specificity of uh, German Dasein uh, as well. So uh, and this partly goes back to the the importance of the war experience. In this case, it's World War One, which for Heidegger's generation was the foundational experience, uh, such that they viewed. The, the Nazi seizure power in 33 as continuous with the experiences of their generation as, and as a, uh, you know, a justified and, and productive, uh, you know, fulfillment of the hopes of that generation. The, the whole notion of the Nazi Volksgemeinschaft, to which I've alluded, you know, earlier, was viewed as a continuation of the, the so-called community uh, of the trenches during World War One. Of course, this is where Hitler came from, and this is where many of Heidegger's contemporaries uh, ha had been involved. Uh, and you know, Heidegger complained that he had a heart ailment, um, and fortunately, he lived to be, uh, you know, uh, 86 years old. Uh, so uh, he must have had a good doctor. Who looked after him, but but I think it was a source of uh, you know, great misgiving that he hadn't served in the war. There was so much. He even falsified his resume in the first years of Nazism by saying that he'd seen service near Verdun, uh, the site of you know a, a major battle. Um, but basically, um, this 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 was. He hadn't really seen uh, service on the front. <laughs> he he uh, was uh, analyzing weather conditions for gas attacks, so that's something very different. But I think there was this, you know, it's biographically there was this feeling of uh, inadequacy uh, for not having participated in this foundational experience of his generation, the the, the front experience uh, or the war, and this. Does manifest this generational, uh, you know, uh, sequence reappears in his philosophy. Generation is is a category in being in time. In paragraphs seventy four of Crucial 
explanation of historicity. You experience historicity with your generation and with your folk. That comes comes up too, and it's a struggle. That's all. That's all in being in time too. So the, these are, you know, if you will, uh, elements that uh, are also ideological or between ideology and philosophy, philosophy and ideology. Now, this is a couple decades on, but I, but I do recall there was a, uh, a Heidegger convened a seminar on uh, Heraclitus's fragments. And I think uh, the philosopher, Jodiro Agamben, actually attended. Um, what role did the fragments play, particularly fragment 53, uh, the concept of polemos, uh, play in Heideggerian thought? Uh, particularly in the context of his doctrine of total annihilation and the Nietzschean internal uh, enemy. Yes, uh, he, in, in fact, this is not uh, a, an attachment to, Hy- to Heraclitus fragment 53, where Heraclitus calls uh, polemos, or war, the father of all things. Um, and, and in fact, it was a slogan or a maxim that was bandied about quite frequently. Hitler, in fact, mentioned it in a speech from the late 20s. Uh, Carl Schmitt mentions it in his work, unsurprisingly, in uh, the concept of the political. And when Heidegger corresponds with Schmitt in 1933, August of 1933, possibly uh, having in mind a kind of alliance for the uh, reconstitution uh, of the German state under under Nazism. As I mentioned earlier, Heidegger and Schmidt would uh, uh, join together on this committee uh, under Hans Frank's leadership on philosophy of law. Uh, approximately eight months later. So this this was this was a slogan that seemed to to capture uh, the post World War One mentality, uh, the Heraclitus fragment, that uh, we were in a new age of well, uh, Ernst Jünger called it the age of total mobilization, and that the age of liberalism. Uh, and pacifism had been surmounted, and uh, the the total state was a state, as this is a phrase from from uh, Schmidt, the total state uh, was on perpetual mobilization for war. Uh, but th- there's also a prominent social Darwinist dimension to uh, this formulation that the essence of life is struggle, survival of the fittest. And this is also an ideological precept that one finds often in uh, Nazi texts and conservative revolutionary texts of the 1920s that tries, as do so many conservatives today, uh, disturbingly, tries to go beyond liberalism uh, not by improving it or not through democratic uh, changes or transformations, but rather by ceding to some of the 
you know, basis imperatives of uh, struggle and survival. Uh, and and there, there's also an aspect of Heidegger's early philosophy of existence uh, in being in time that that is conducive to moving in this direction because it it deconstructs or destructs destructures uh, inherited quote unquote metaphysical and value concepts from the Western tradition to begin with something in Heidegger's view very basic and elemental and uh, presuppositionless, one might say, uh, namely uh, being in the world. And uh, there's a risk here, one might say, of confusing uh, facts. Heidegger calls it facticity in, in earlier texts, facts and values. We shouldn't base values on facts. We have the capacity to reevaluate facts on the basis of principle. This is the, the basis of culture. Uh, I think, uh, and and uh, so this recourse to facticity, to existence, in Heidegger's sense, naked facticity, uh, basic existence, uh, is is uh, throws away too much, and uh, attempts to be, I think, in certain respects, to to smuggles in presuppositions, many Nietzschean presuppositions uh, about the untenability. Of inherited values and and these these Darwinian notions that are also prominent in Nietzsche, uh, uh, despite his critiques of Darwin, that life is struggle and we can learn from from Darwin and that uh, you, you know we we uh, uh, and all, all these ideas are you know disturbingly coming back now with the the new right and the alt right uh, and the struggle of uh, American conservatives who are disillusioned with neoconservatism as just a, another, uh, you know, incarnation, pale incarnation of liberalism, uh, looking to supersede liberalism and and neoconservatism uh, in a uh, you know more uh, muscular and uh, uh, Machiavellian uh, direction. Hence. Heidegger's uh, prominence and and inordinate relevance in in these circles internationally. So, okay. So on the one hand, we have uh, Heidegger's root, rootedness uh, of or kind of soil place. On the other hand, we have uh, the potential root, root, rootlessness of Lebensraum, which you mentioned earlier that uh, he to a certain extent, advocated for, um, you know, and we're talking about uh, reconciliation. How did he uh, attempt to reconcile the two? Yes. Uh, yeah, it's, it's an apparent paradox because if one emphasizes the primordiality of rootedness in soil, one prima facie would have difficulty justifying uh, as Heidegger actually puts it in this seminar from 1934, Nature, History, and State, uh, reaching out uh, into the expanse uh, and, and uh, you know, militarily or, or economically in terms of trade and incorporating other spaces. Uh, 
so there, there seems to be a tension here, which can only be resolved in terms of, if you will, social Darwinism and uh, the fact that uh, you know, international politics and relations among nations is a struggle for survival and survival of the fittest, which was, uh, you know, there was a certain consensus about this on the part of the right, uh, especially in Germany in the uh, 20s and 30s, which meant that uh, those nations or peoples that didn't assert themselves or expand uh, were consigned to extinction or disappearance. The, this whole notion of, of right-wing geopolitics and Lebensraum in Germany, this whole discourse suggested, did, did deal with the, the idea of, uh, was predicated on the idea of historical and unhistorical peoples. And the historical peoples were the ones who had the capacity to assert themselves at the expense of the smaller nations or unhistorical peoples. And of course, this could be interpreted uh, you know, in German, in German geopolitics, one has this figure that, go, that goes along with, with all of this discourse of Mitteleuropa, um, Central Europe, Germany as the master of Central Europe, as the mediator between East and West. It has certain more anodyne connotations um, with uh, the originator of the concept, well, someone who, who used it in the book, Friedrich Naumann, uh, a national liberal during World War I had more of an economic sense, but it has a, a very a bellicose uh, and, and imperialist sense, uh, you know, continental imperialism, let's say, uh, with uh, Haushofer and other representatives of German geopolitics uh, in the 1920s and 30s. So, uh, you, know, some, you know, on one hand, you're rooted, but that shouldn't prevent you from, uh, you know, Temporarily uprooting yourself and and you know using uh, force and violence to uproot others and take over their spaces it seems a bit contradictory and maybe it's not thought through that thoroughly uh, but at least in in these meditations from 1934 that should be taken seriously uh, you know it's a philosophical text uh, Heidegger's uh, seminar. Uh, you know, discussions and, and uh, you know, uh, passages. Uh, this, this is, you know, quote, nominally a solution that he perceives, which if he's thinking like this in 34, before, you know, uh, Germany is on a war, Nazi Germany, the Third Reich is on a war footing, one can see uh, a philosophical basis or ground for identifying with German National Socialist geopolitics in 1939, once World War II starts, uh, to fulfill the destiny and mission, the singular destiny and mission of the German folk. Uh, even if Heidegger admittedly has specific criticisms of <clears throat> the Nazi movement at this point for being uh, you know, having abandoned prematurely uh, some of its uh, you know, ontological potential in favor of, of uh, mechanized warfare, let's say, 
Um, but but you know, history is filled with historicity. One might say is filled with compromises and and uh, setbacks. Uh, you know, perhaps this is only a temporary phenomenon. So. Um, even philosophers of Heidegger's stature have a remarkable capacity to rationalize, uh, you know, untoward experiences within their frameworks. So, should also be looked at, uh, you know, critically. I have to remind myself this: Heidegger is all about right the absolute unity of opposites when we talk about reconciliation. Um, so, uh, to wrap up here, I'm going to connect these two questions. Um, how? What role did the uh, Heideggerian metaphysics of myth play in trumping uh, cognitive reason? I know there was a, a recent, actually, uh, pr- a pretty promising study of the Davos debate. Um, and can you connect that to uh, the revival of Heideggerian thought among the uh, Euro New Right? I know you uh, just published an article on the Great Great Replacement Theory as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I'll just kind of give a, a sketch of, of where this fits in, actually, in terms of myth. Uh, it's a very interesting development, perhaps underestimated in, in uh, the usual uh, philosophical studies of Heidegger's trajectory, uh, especially in relationship to the, the Davos debate with Kassirer. Already in 28, the year before the, the debate in Davos, Heidegger reviews the second volume of Kassirer's Philosophy of Symbolic Forms, which is on mythical thought. Uh, He does this in preparation for the debate. And one notices uh, an evolving sympathy for mythical worldviews uh, as a uh, contrast and ballast to uh, rationalistic approaches to knowledge and truth. Uh, there's a famous uh, saying where, you know, I don't know how famous it is, but uh, it's quoted at times from Heidegger's Nietzsche essay in 1941, Nietzsche's word, God is dead, where Heidegger says that reason uh, often glorified is really the most stiff-necked adversary of thought. Well, if that's, if that's true, then uh, one might re-examine the prominent reconsideration of the value of myth that is a recurrent theme or leitmotif in 19th century German thought, beginning with Schelling's philosophy of mythology, and it reappears, uh, you know, forcefully in Nietzsche's, uh, you know, early book, *The Birth of Tragedy*, where he counterposes uh, the Greek Enlightenment negatively to uh, *The Birth of Tragedy* as the title you know, indicates uh, this is, you know, uh, an important leitmotif. Then he develops, he in this case being Heidegger, a friendship with Alfred Bäumler uh, in the late 20s, who uh, deals with, uh, edits an anthology of Bach often, um, kind of a colleague of Nietzsche and Basel, uh, who, uh, you know, wrote on uh, uh, the right of mother, Mutterrecht, the, the law of, of mothers, etc., and uh, which which was in keeping with this rediscovery of the epistemological value of myth. Heidegger corresponds with Werner Jaeger uh, about the importance of myth in the early 30s and his turn to Hölderlin and and 
uh, the, the foundational role of, of poets in founding states is consistent with this uh, dimension. So uh, it's, it's, they're, 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 it, it deserves to be reconsidered, I think, in terms of Heidegger's alienation from uh, you know, epistemology, the lineage from Descartes to Kant to Husserl, etc., and uh, you know these these intellect these motifs uh, have resonance with the contemporary uh, new right, as I was trying to argue in the the article you uh, you know kindly referenced. Uh, in terms of it's it's actually kind of surprising to see uh, a thinker uh, as at times impenetrable as Heidegger being invoked even superficially by uh, the contemporary new right. And it's an international phenomenon. After all, uh, one of Putin's leading advisors and the, the uh, you know, ideologue of uh, neo-Eurasianism uh, in the Russian context, uh, Alexander Dugin, is also, uh, you know, justly or unjustly uh, Russia's leading Heideggerian. He published uh, at least four books on Heidegger I had the surreal experience of debating some of Dugan's students at Moscow State University uh, in uh, 2015, uh, a moment I'll never never forget, certainly. Uh, it's uh, a different kind of public sphere uh, in, uh, you know, certain quadrants of, of uh, you know, Russian uh, intellectual life, certainly. Uh, but, but these arguments... Uh, on Heidegger's part about rootedness uh, and, and anti-cosmopolitanism and anti-liberalism had great resonance in this context. But it's not just in Russia, obviously. Heidegger is often uh, invoked uh, as uh, a critic of national socialism. Uh, in, in terms of the, the whole you know, program of the new right, going back to the French Nouvelle Droite and Alain de Bonnois has been uh, to rehabilitate the conservative revolutionary thinkers whom they read rightly or wrongly as non-Nazis, hence as, as uh, you know, uh, grist for their mill of re-legitimating uh, right-wing thought and far-right thought in a post-World War II context when that whole tradition had been so seriously delegitimated as a result of the horrors and catastrophes of second, the Second World War. So, uh, you know, this program has really gained a lot of traction and it's figures such as uh, Heidegger and Schmidt, obviously, who's everywhere these days, China, Russia, um, the United States, you name it, uh, Spengler, uh, et cetera, that, that seem to be the, the guild uh, of, you know, the, the intellectually sophisticated uh, Nazi sympathizers, in certain case, party members, Heidegger and Schmidt, uh, et cetera. I mean, Spengler died in 36. Um, who knows what might have happened? Uh, so, uh, you know, Heidegger is invoked uh, as, you know, a, a philosophical uh, forebear and, and uh, you know, inspiration for many of these movements. 
uh, you know, it might be, these might not be the most sophisticated uh, exegesis interpretations of Heidegger's thought, um, but still it's a, it's a phenomenon that, uh, you know, bears note. Uh, and, and uh, you know, certainly there are reasons why Heidegger is invoked as opposed to other German or European philosophers, you know, such as Kant, uh, you know, uh, uh, etc. So, uh, yeah, and and uh, this replacement theory, which of course is is all over the world now and is being explicitly invoked uh, in the case of these horrible Islamophobic. Uh, mass murders uh, in, you know, uh, New Zealand uh, and, and uh, elsewhere, uh, Breivik in, in Norway, etc. Uh, you know, it, it, it all goes back to the rethinking of citizenship away from civic belonging and political uh, Republican notions of citizenship based on principle and uh, elective criteria, such as Rousseau's uh, general will, etc., just to use that as a figure, but a point of reference toward ethnic citizenship and the primacy of the ethnos, ethnos rather than the demos, etc. This is a, a general cultural move we've seen in so many contexts, even China, which still claims to be communist, is, is celebrating the primacy of the, the Han people, uh, you know, in Xinjiang and, and other regions, etc. chauvinistically, uh, one must say. Uh, it's, a, it's a trend of the times, and unfortunately, one can see how Heidegger's defense of, of Raumpolitik and, and uh, you know, locality and, uh, you know, uh, even his provincial provincialism, uh, and and the, the notion of German exceptionalism that that he stresses so often fits into this paradigm, um, and and you know these are phenomena that need to be reflected upon and analyzed rather than being dismissed as as you know this is just a part of Heidegger that uh, is contingent and and uh, you know was. Uh, politically opportunistic because it has uh, deeper roots in uh, a term he might appreciate actually uh, deeper roots in his thinking so those roots have to be critically examined too so I have one follow-up question what's up for you next what do you uh, are you you know is there anything you can disclose about your next study or collection well, it's, that's very kind of you to ask. Uh, briefly, in the penultimate chapter of the book uh, that you've just alluded to, namely, uh, it's called From Beyond the Grave, Heidegger, a bit portentously maybe, Heidegger and the New Right. Uh, I did kind of ensconce myself in much of this international New Right discourse. Uh, you know, I've mentioned the, the protagonists, uh, 
Russian context, French context, of course, the German context, which I left out, uh, is, is a major context, too, where you have this, uh, you know, German uh, Volkspartei, basically the alternative for Germany that's made all these electoral in, inroads uh, and, and uh, known in German, the, the new right in Germany, the Neue Rechte. Um, they have all these think tanks. Uh, and have gotten a lot of attention in recent years since the refugee crisis of 2015. So uh, I, I think I, I now try to segue. Uh, you mentioned this article I wrote on replace the inter European origins of replacement theory, uh, segue to making some of these, uh, you know, philosophical and intellectually uh, more historical arguments, uh, bringing them up to date. And, and making it more contemporary uh, and uh, maybe hopefully uh, <laughs> turning the page from, from Heidegger uh, and, and, you know, uh, leaving uh, that kind of work to, to, to others. Uh, but, but, you know, suddenly uh, I, I've, you know, worked on, on the far right in the past and, uh, had assumed perhaps naively that the conservative revolutionary thinkers uh, and the panoply of uh, you know new right ideas were safely on the margins and would continue there. And we're in a very different world today. Uh, you know, you read the newspapers and and uh, you know you do this podcast and um, know as well as I um, what kind of uh, significant ideological shift. Uh, the world is undergoing toward uh, authoritarian uh, national populism today. Uh, and and uh, in so many cases, there's a, a reliance for ideological support uh, on the part of, uh, you know, these new right thinkers. Julius uh, Evola uh, is very important. Um, one sees references to his work all over the place. So, you know, hopefully I can play the role of, of uh, someone who can communicate the uh, and make links between the original context of the development of these ideas and the contemporary use. Well, thank you for being on the podcast today, Professor Woolen. Thank you very much for having me, Ryan, and appreciated your questions. So the book is Heidegger and Ruins Between Philosophy and Ideology, uh, published by Yale University Press. Uh, it is out now. Uh, I've been your host, Ryan Tripp, on behalf of uh, Professor Wallen and myself. This has been a production of the New Books Network, the New Books and History channel. Please tune in next time.